Latin America specialist, Yanis um, uh, Iqbal, who's in Aligarh, India. And Yanis, uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you. So I wanted to, I'm, I'm keen to talk to Yanis because, you know, this is, in my view, it's kind of like a South-South solidarity uh, situation. You don't often get a, a writer from India um, who just shows up and writes uh, about Latin America in, in a really detailed way. And uh, so, yeah, I, I was interested because, first of all, uh, in some ways, you're, I, I've, I've kind of called you a Latin America specialist, but in a lot of ways, you're more like a, a critic of neoliberalism. So there's an article you wrote um, in the Eurasia Review called Neoliberal Ethics and the Legitimation of Suffering. And I kind of um, kind of like that uh, concept. Can, and one of the sections is neoliberal subjectivization. Um, and you talk about four elements uh, from a paper by Adams and Estrada Villalta uh, about this. Can you uh, can you just go through these, like your summary of these ideas? Uh, yes. So uh, at that in that article, I was talking about the cultural apparatus of neoliberalism because neoliberalism is not only an economic mechanism, and it needs to culturally embed itself in the social web of relations. So the four things which I mentioned are the uh, processes through which it embeds itself. So the first uh, process was radical abstraction. Uh, in radical abstraction, we are told that we can be anything we want. Uh, this is done to induce a hyper agency in us so that we forget our oppression and think that uh, we can achieve something only through our entrepreneurial skills but this is not true uh, because as we are taught in dialectical materialism material conditions exert a downward causative impact on us and we are conditioned by those material facts and and when we will overcome uh, that conditionedness then only we can advance further but radical abstraction prevents us from apprehending this by saying that material conditions do not matter the second process was uh, entrepreneurialization or what Michel Foucault called entrepreneur of self. Uh, this is the hyper individualization of subjects where we imagine ourselves as a portfolio of investments. So everything which we do, education, health, it becomes an investment on human capital. Uh, this, this can also be called human capitalization where we are economically mechanized. We lose our critical collective agency. The third element or process was growth imperative. And this is really important for the perpetuation of neoliberalism because growth imperative urges us to constantly seek new opportunities and diversify risks and uh, maximize the profit. Uh, but neoliberalism conceals this by saying that uh, growth is a good thing, but it is not. Uh, it ideologically conceals this by saying that through growth, you proliferate yourself and it masks this with the help of consumerism. Through growth, you can buy more things, you can become a good consumer. And the fourth is effect management. And it is basically a process of emotional uh, overregulation where neoliberalism does not allow the pessimism of the intellect to uh, surface. As Gramsci used, used it, pessimism of the intellect is actually the critical recognition of our conditionedness. 
but neoliberalism by focusing solely on positive feelings on positive effects prevents us from apprehending the material uh, conditions that's perfect so now i think uh at the end of towards the end of the article you also talk about how these our societies in which neoliberalism uh, is i guess hegemonic are societies full of mental health crises and the way that neoliberalism uh, handles mental health is also um, specific uh, can you can you talk about that element of it as well uh, so yes, I, I will talk about it. In neoliberalism, suffering is concealed. You just can't express your suffering because if you express suffering, if you establish uh, solidarity on the basis of suffering with other people, you will eventually get the thought of toppling neoliberalism, which induces this suffering in the first place. So to prevent this from happening, neoliberalism has appropriated the mental health field as a uh, as an ideological apparatus to prevent us from expressing our suffering. Uh, the mental health field employs tactics which medicalize our suffering, they individualize our suffering. And through this, an individuated medical subjectivity is produced. Um, the suffering uh, produced in neoliberalism is the result of uh, economic policies and deliberately uh, managed uh, policies, but when we go to a mental doctor, he says that, no, it's not a result of the accumulation regime. It's not a result of neoliberalism. It's a result of your choices. Uh, it's a result of your uh, personal feelings, your individual feelings. In this way, the uh, unitary uh, solidarity, which would have occurred if we had not uh, gone to the uh, doctor, gets fragmented. And neoliberalism is utilizing this a lot of time in uh, today's period because the mental crisis is gradually aggravating as more pressure is exerted on the individual to compete and through this competition, mental, uh, the mental health crisis aggravates and the mental health fields will intervene more frequently to prevent individuals from expressing suffering and establishing solidarity pacts with other people. I've been thinking a lot about this in the context of just the way social media works and even like, you know, your profession or my profession where, you know, you you want to be thinking about how to produce a good piece of work that helps people understand something. But as soon as you post it, it's like, well, what, how many posts, how many likes, how many retweets have you gotten on it, right? So it's also that that idea that you're supposed to compete, you're supposed to outdo others, and you're supposed to achieve a higher numerical uh, quantitative um, status over other people. And that's just like the minute you enter the system, no matter what, even if you're trying to be a leftist journalist, um, you're subjected to th some of these forces and encouraged to feel you know bad about yourself, to put it kind of crudely. Um, yes, you, uh, you are saying it correctly. Uh, in the academic field, uh, there is a popular maxim, uh, publish or perish. This essentially yeah. captures the hyper-competitiveness which has been installed in the academic field also. Yeah, exactly.
All right, but now uh, you know. Because with that context, I actually think um, I'd like to just go through some of the some of the things you've written about because um, it's like uh, like it's clear that you're writing about neoliberalism and you know capitalism, of course, and 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 imperialism too, like in the empire and the way that these things are all um, combined to crush the aspirations of people all over the world, but. Um, you write about them in this very, over the past few months, you've written a series of articles where you kind of focus on a particular region and a particular commodity. Um, so, for example, you know, uh, listeners of this um, podcast know a lot about Colombia. Um, and you've written about the coffee crisis in Colombia. And coffee, you know, has been a major commodity for Colombia for a over a hundred years, like the 1930s were probably the most important uh, decade. But tell me about what's going on in with with the corona, what you've called the coronavirus. I mean, not you, but like what you were identifying in your article as the coronavirus coffee crisis in Colombia. Uh, the coronavirus coffee crisis uh, specifically refers uh, to the fact that uh, Venezuelan immigrants uh, they help a lot in the coffee business in Colombia. Uh, but now when the borders have closed, uh, coffee pickers have left uh, and this has precipitated a crisis. So this was the specific part of coronavirus crisis. Uh, but apart from uh, the specificity of coronavirus, I have talked about the predatory practices of Starbucks. In, mm-hmm. April, in April, the price of Arabica coffee reduced to an exceptionally low. per pound and this is not a one-off phenomena it is part of the uh, Starbucks imperialism which we are seeing in which we're seeing in so many decades Uh, Mm -hmm. earlier there used to be a stable international coffee regime uh, due to the International Coffee Organization and National Coffee Federation but as neoliberalism progressed and as the Soviet style state institutions were defeated these regulatory apparatuses also came down and the concept of free market was uh, being promoted. So as this started, the Colombian coffee farmers started reeling under the effects of free market capitalism. Starbucks buys 40% of Central American uh, Arabica varieties and uh, it is the and Colombia is the second largest Arabica producer. So there is a direct um, simultaneity of interests here. Uh, Starbucks is capitalizing on the general shift of power which has occurred after the ICA regime. Uh, After the end of the ICA regime, there has been a shift of power from producing to consuming countries in the coffee market chain. And through this, Starbucks is able to exploit the coffee farmers and get coffee at low prices and sell them at stable retail prices. So, the prices of Starbucks coffee is increasing, but at the same time, the prices which uh, the Colombian coffee farmers receive is decreasing. In this way, Starbucks is just exploiting the coffee farmers. And you wrote that you wrote that one report by the ICO uh, notes that in Colombia, as in uh, twelve other countries, many in Latin America, uh, fifty-three of percent of coffee farmers work at a loss uh, yes they work at a loss because this is also due to the climate change factor 
whereas starbucks says that it has a green policy it is not the true fact the regions in which it operates are experiencing severe climate change and starbucks is just hiding this through its collaboration with international organizations it is contributing meager amount of money to the coffee farmers and saying that hey we are helping the coffee farmers but this is not the case the long the longer sorry the largest structural features of the coffee crisis in colombia show that starbucks is implementing or you can say aggravating the situation of coffee farmers by not helping them combat the climate crisis and buying uh, their coffee at low prices yeah and you know the the point you make about the climate crisis is important coffee is grown at high elevation i mean the best coffee that people love to drink is the is grown at the highest possible elevation um and so those areas are the most sensitive ecosystems uh and so as a as a result it's just like you said the the most affected by climate change are going to be these high altitude it always hits these high altitudes first i mean high, high and low coasts obviously also become flooded but that's not an issue for coffee so much um okay shall we switch commodities uh, um <laughs> I want to just tell you the effects of the climate crisis. Uh, yes, please. Yeah. Uh, Colombia has already lost 40,000 hectares of coffee planting areas in 2019 and 15% of coffee growing areas are likely to experience a temperature increase of 3 degrees Celsius and this will make them unsuitable for arabica cultivation. And as coffee farmers shift to higher altitude regions, uh, ecosystems will get disturbed. but starbucks is not uh, going to help the coffee farmers and it is just collaborating with inter american development bank and other us organizations to uh, give sops to the coffee farmers so tell me about the what's going on in honduras with um with the both tourism and the palm oil imperialism it's interesting because these two commodities are I mean yeah I mean these two forms of extraction which I I'd like you to talk a bit about tourism as an extractive industry uh these two forms of extraction are not only uh, destructive to the indigenous community you talk specifically about the garifuna indigenous community there but they're also in opposition to each other in the sense that palm oil is about destro- destroying the rainforest and um tourism is about exploiting the rainforest without by either expelling or rendering invisible uh the indigenous people who have been involved in and co-managed the ecosystem for centuries so can you talk about that uh yes we can talk about uh the garifuna community in honduras uh when the 2009 coup occurred in honduras uh there was a slogan by the unified capitalists that Honduras is open for business uh so it was not cracked open for business because the uh deposed president wasn't socialist nevertheless um the slogan was that and so it meant that there was to be an aggressive new liberalization of the economy and and a core component of this new liberalization was uh, tourism uh 
in 2016 for example the international tourism spending uh, was 685 million dollar in 2017 it increased to 700 million dollar so we can see that tourism is increasingly occupying a major economic space in the in honduras economy but we have to look at the sordid underside of tourism uh, the enjoyment of european and american recreational investors in honduras occurs at the cost of the displacement uh, the strategically orchestrated uh, pillage of garifuna indigenous communities uh, to analyze this we have to consider tourism as an extractive industry since uh, you market the product the commodified uh, products like the uh, virgin ecosystem to foreigners and through this you are um, doing an extractive operation where you sell uh, the commodities of one region like the ecosystem like the culture to foreign investors and here too we can see that canadian investors are playing an important role for example randy jorgensen he constructed a banana coast cruise ship port in which an entire village of rio negro was evicted to make way for this luxury cruise ship port and john thompson a close friend of randy jorgensen uh, said that gary shunak shouldn't resist against uh, this project because they will kill the golden goose no one knows what this golden goose was since you have displaced the honduras from the land you have taken away the land and this means taking away the existence of the garifuna people because for garifuna land matters a lot and for them there is an agro spiritual value of land ecotourism now let us talk about ecotourism it is a subcategory of tourism in which tourists uh, visit endangered ecosystems the best example of the onslaught of ecotourism in honduras can be the honduras caribbean biological corridor which is part of the large mesoamerican biological corridor um, in this the garifuna community living in one national park uh, in the corridor were uh, disallowed from fishing and their agricultural lands were uh, taken away from them and this happened through the environmentally conscious policies of the government in which the sustainable state uh, destroyed the indigenous existence of the garifuna community so through this uh, the garifuna community are being subverted their existence is being subverted by tourism and ecotourism now let us come to palm oil uh, honduras is the biggest exporter of palm oil in central america and in the last two decades its production has increased by 560% uh so this steady production uh behind this steady production we can locate uh the displacement of the garifuna people uh and here miguel facus a honduran business magnate called palm plantation owner of death is the major actor like randy jorgensen in the tourism sector so through a series of reforms and decrees and laws uh, like agricultural modernization laws the honduras were told that your land has to be used for palm oil and you can't use it for your traditional agricultural practices and even today uh, in the region of alicito palm oil violence is being carried out and uh, armed groups are shooting randomly at community members this underscores that there is what you call uh, palm oil imperialism where african palm is destroying the existence of the garifuna community in honduras yeah absolutely and i i think that sometimes it's too often that we think of a commodity or imperialism rather as being based on fossil fuels exclusively 
Uh, and it's clear that as we move to, as, as they move towards, uh, a country will try to claim that they're moving towards a more sustainable model uh, of tourism, say, or um, in the case of Boliv I mean, Bolivia or Chile, lithium, which is ultimately for um, renewable energy projects, battery storage, but has very much another imperialist footprint. So can you talk a bit more about lithium imperialism in this case in Chile uh, and in, um, in Bolivia too, if you'd like? Um, I have used uh, an analytical framework called lithium imperialism to uh, critically uh, study the conditions of Chile. So lithium imperialism is basically the fusion of uh, planetary mining or mining on a global scale with militarized policies. So Chile is a victim of lithium imperialism because it has vast lithium reserves. So this is the paradox of plenty or the resource curse. Uh, the country has 48% of world lithium reserves and this amounts to 7.5 million tons of lithium. Uh, 6 million tons of the 7.5 million tons is found in Salar de Atacama, which is a salt plain where indigenous people live. Chile is also part of the lithium triangle uh, where 70% of lithium reserves are found. And the lithium triangle is formed by northern Chile, uh, southern Bolivia and northern Argentina. Another reason why Chile is attractive for lithium neoconquistadors is because it has low cost production. Um, in Chile, there is brine extraction uh, and brine is aqueous salt solution. So in contradistinction to hard rock extraction like the one found in Australia, where the cost is $4,000 to $6,000, Chile has brine extraction where the cost is minimal, $2,000 to $3,000. So also due to this factor, uh, Chile has uh, increased attractiveness for lithium imperialists and Chile also has high quality lithium in terms of uh, lithium to potassium uh, ratio and lithium to magnesium ratio. Um, but this project of lithium imperialism in Chile has not been has been accompanied by intensified class struggle because in lithium brine extraction uh, it is a water intensive process. 95% of brine water is lost to evaporation and 65% of the water in Salafti uh, Atakim has been consumed by lithium mining operations and to just extract a ton of lithium from brine you need 500,000 gallons of water. There are two companies operating in the Atakim salt flats and these are Alba Marley, North Carolina based company and SQM. Uh, so these companies uh, have been given licenses to extract a lot of water. So a lot of social, uh, uh, hydrosocial conflict we can say is occurring in Chile. We have to see that water scarcity does not indicate a mere quantifiable decrease in uh, water levels. It is rather a general degradation of indigenous people because indigenous people use water to uh, for cultivation and they use it for herding llamas. Uh, because llamas need vegetation and for vegetation you need a moist soil but when the water is uh, stolen by lithium mining companies the indigenous people lose their way of life and are culturally colonized by the imperialist operation and coming to bolivia 
uh, we can say that it was a lithium coup and from uh, Elon Musk's statement we will coup whoever we want deal with it we can infer that uh, Tesla is the leading lithium imperialist company and Bolivia has is being a part of the lithium triangle is attractive for uh, Elon Musk and so I think we can say that there is a credible connection between lithium imperialism and the Bolivian coup and to advance this lithium imperialist agenda we know that USA intervened heavily uh, in the 2019 Bolivian coup. In some ways over the past few months uh, it's like you've been documenting the modern version of uh, the open veins of Latin America. A lot of your coverage at the Eurasia Review and in other publications. So what kind, how do you, how would you describe your approach to journalism and the way that you link um, your theoretical framework to uh, the idea of going and reporting on a particular situation or commodity or country or conflict? Before writing these journalistic articles on what you have rightly said as the open veins of Latin America, so poetically framed by Eduardo Galliano. So before writing these journalistic articles, I extensively studied uh, Marxist theory and a bit of political economy. Only after the study of a political economic framework of Marxism, I was able to write these articles because unlike liberalism or right-wing academicism you do not merely study the facts and empirically reproduce them that is shallow empiricism but in revolutionary journalism you critically analyze the facts and you interconnect them in the larger structural matrix of capitalism you try to dialectically interconnect them uh, by seeing how they relate to capital accumulation, how they subvert capital accumulation. And I think my approach is really similar to what Lenin said, that without revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary struggle. So I think we should regard, uh, Marxists uh, regard journalism as a revolutionary class struggle in which you utilize your Marxist theoretical framework to uh, interconnect the myriad facts in the larger structural framework of capital accumulation. So that's my journalism, which is theoretically informed and empirically elaborated. And uh, and while the lockdown continues, I guess we can look forward to uh, and more more work from you uh, until you have to go back to school. But listen, um, I I wanted to say that that point about journalism is really well taken because I actually was a teaching assistant at a journalism school for a couple of years here in Toronto and it's taught in a very theory free kind of way like you just go and report the news and you um, and then uh, and then you bring it back and you report it uh, so. Last thing, I guess, you know, where can we find Yanis Iqbal? Where can we find your work? Um, and what can we look forward to in the next uh, little while from you? Uh, you can find my articles in uh, Znet, uh, Monthly Review Online, Green Social Thought, uh, News and Letters Weekly, Weekly Worker, Economic and Political Weekly. And uh, some are also published in Open News, uh, People's Review global research dissident voice so these are some of the magazines where my articles are usually published and currently i'm studying uh, argentina's condition uh, 
particularly I am studying the effects of lithium imperialism in Argentina. So apart from Argentina, I have written two articles on Peru. The first were the first one is on the catastrophic uh, COVID-19 catastrophe which has occurred in Peru due to the privatized health infrastructure which is there and due to the historically dependent development which has taken place in Peru. So in the first article on Peru, I have tried to contextualize uh, the COVID-19 catastrophe or the coronavirus health shock um, in, uh, in Peru in the ma structural matrix of dependent development and extractive economy. So I have sent that article for publication and will soon uh, get the result. And the second article on Peru which I have written is on but, uh, specifically extractivism. Uh, this article uh, tries to review the decision by the present-day Peru's government uh, at deregulating the mining sector. Uh, it shows that the current deregulation of mining sector is set to elicit an enraged response from the indigenous people because Peru has a history of uh, the pillage of indigenous communities due to extractive capital. and when the government will deregulate the economy we are going to see uh, the mutiny of the indigenous people um, furthermore working class is also included in this analysis because when mining intensifies uh, the corporations will try to get greater profit margins reduce unit labor costs and in this way increase their operating cash flow and appreciate the dividend uh, so shareholder value maximization is driving an intensified war against labor and this is also going to play out in Peru. So this is my future project for now. That's great, Yanis. Uh, Yanis Iqbal, thank you very much for joining me all the way from Aligarh, India to talk about uh, imperialism in Latin America. Uh, stay in touch and, you know, if you uh, do one of these investigations and you want to report on it specifically, maybe you can come back anytime. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really enjoyed the podcast session. Thank you.